did you get some feeling of hands of others? Did you get some feeling about the kindness of others? Is there some shift in how you felt about your parents? I think we often expect kind of impossible things from our parents. We forget that they're human beings with problems just like us. I think, you know, we were so little that we thought that they knew how to do everything. Because at the beginning of our life, they didn't know how to do everything that was necessary for keeping us alive. But we forgot they were human beings. Did you think a little bit about uh, animals and how they treat their young? Did that give you some kind of feeling too? I remember um, many years ago at a cloud mountain retreat when they still had peacocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were here uh, doing this meditation, and I was down by the peacock pen, which is used to be near where the garden is, and uh, watching, you know, the peahen take care of her chicks, you know, and teach them how to peck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean. If you're peacock, you need to know how to pack, or you, you know, nobody's gonna, you know, mom can't speed food you. <laughs> no spoon feature. <laughs> but just watching how, you know, she took so much care to, to teach, you know, her chicks how to get food. And then watching the deer, one year there was a mom with a couple of babies, you know, teaching her, her baby deer how to, you know, where to look for the food. So some kind, sometimes quite moving, you know, thinking of my kitty when she gave birth and, you know, moving her kittens from here to there to protect them, yeah. And then you think, you know, we were once in this kind of situation and somebody took that kind of care of us. Kind of hard to believe, huh? So it chips away a bit at this feeling of being, you know, on on top of everything I can take care of myself. Because we see that, uh, you know, we certainly haven't been that way our whole life. And it certainly won't be. I mean, is it now? Are we re- how much are we really able to take care of ourselves now? How good of a job do we do with it? But then when we get old, you know, our body's going to uh, revert back and so we'll start wearing diapers again. Yeah. We're going to be need to be wheeled around except in a wheelchair instead of a baby buggy. Um, you know, so will we be able to accept the kind help from others when we're old? Well, can we grow old gracefully? Um, you know, and still feel like we have something to give to the people who will take care of us if we live that long. Mm-hmm. So 
but you know, just getting back in touch with uh, how much we depend on others and how much they've actually come through for us. Because you know, a lot of us may have trust issues, and you know, people never come through for me. But when we think of our life, actually, they've come through for us a lot. Maybe not exactly as we would have liked it, but it happened nevertheless. So I think that that's quite important um, to remember, not only for our psychological well-being this life, but also, uh, you know, to to get a, a bigger sense of the kindness we've received and wanting to repay it. Um, how did you do with evening out the bumps of attachment, hostility, and apathy? Yeah? I think it was easier for me to um, get the enemies and strangers in the same category than it was to lose my attachment to the people I have in the Ah, interesting. So it was easier to get the friends and enemies, I mean the strangers and enemies into the friend category than it was to loosen the attachment with the people that you have there. Yeah. Anybody else find that case? Yeah? Right? Yeah. Well, I have a real hard time with that same thing. I think it's really bad that enemies situation and that kind of the meditation seems to help that issue more because mm-hmm. of just dealing with uh, you know everyone being our mother but I, I was finding I wasn't I couldn't find the, the way out of the attachment okay so, so the thinking about everybody having been our mother and that you know we have a lot of good feelings so it's easier to bring the strangers and enemies you know under the under those good feelings than it is to maybe discriminate what what is genuine genuine love from what is attachment and release the attachment. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have difficulty with the attachment part of it? I think it helped me a little with thinking about how much attachment centers around me so much. Mm-hmm. And that thinking about it's easier to think about my dog who I'm very attached to and how when I first
Yeah. Whoever you were told was your baby, whether it was actually your baby or not, you're going to, by just imputing mine on it, whoa, you know, that kid's going to get the whole nine yards of all your attachment. And then how strange it is on the occasions when that has happened, then, you know, when they find out it's not their kid, you know, years later, then it's not my child. And I mean, they get so confused about it. Well, you know, I shouldn't have this kind of feeling if it's not my child. Here's this other kid who I didn't even know. Well, now I transfer all that to them, but I don't know that when I know this one. Yeah. I read an article recently of um, there was a car accident. Yeah, did you read that where they mixed up the the two women? And yeah, and one the one they thought the one they had the funeral service for actually lived. Yeah, and the one that that. Lived was the one that had the funeral service for. So the one who was in the hospital, the family of the one who died thought it was their daughter. And they sat around this girl for I don't know how long, taking care of her, thinking it was their daughter. Yeah. And and meanwhile the other family's grieving and then they found out that's not their daughter. Yeah. I mean, it must have been strange, just because how our mind works with conceptions. It was like, oh, I gave all that love, and it's not even my daughter. You know? Gee, if I had known that, I wouldn't have given that person all that love and attention. Isn't that silly? You know, as if they're only worthy of your love and attention if you have the word my attached to it. But if it's somebody else's daughter, well, you're not going to sit around the bed and pray and nurse them and do all this stuff. Yeah, but why not? Why not? You know, it's just a label. My, just a label. I mean, what is it about my whatever that makes it mine? Yeah, what is it about your child that makes it yours? We have the same genes. Our genes isn't just a bunch of atoms and molecules. That's all. You love them because of their atoms and molecules? You know, when you look at it that way, it's really rather silly, isn't it? You know, and yet look how we, we put that, that label mine on. Or mine. So it's quite interesting to go through, you know, the, especially this thing with people, because it came up in the context of this meditation, and, and ask ourselves, you know, why? the attachment to do a little bit of research about how giving the label my changes the whole thing when it's just somebody versus when it's my partner or it's just somebody versus my boss or just somebody versus my friend and how so much changes when when we get that label I was wondering if you ever anything just stop using the words I, my, mine, and do such that I was reflecting on my talking instead of saying uh, I, say this pile of aggregates, 
You know, that you watch and you say, I'm walking, and then you say, why do I say, I'm walking? Why is it said, I'm walking? It's because the body is moving. And then you just focus, the body is moving. Well, what's the relationship to the, between the body and the eye? Yeah. Or, you know, you get hurt. I mean, this is good to do with your knees and your back and your head and everything else that's hurting. Um, you know, why do we say, I'm in pain? Well, it's because this certain part of the body has a certain sensation. How does it, you know, if you substitute the words and you say, that part of the body has a certain sensation, then do you react to it differently than if you say, I'm in pain? I had a related experience this morning um, with stomach growling. Garland, then I'm going to feel embarrassed. And if it's their stomach growling, I'm going to feel angry. And if we just say it's our stomach growling, then I don't have to have any of that. Yeah. So you come in about the attachment that, or the importance that adopted kids have towards their birth parents. And you're wondering if it's because they're taught when they're young but, you know, to discriminate with language, my birth parents, my adopted parents. I think very much yes. That, you know, I can remember, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people that were adopted and they had those thoughts that they grew up now on creating an identity out of your roots 
you know, because people want to know now about their racial group. They want to know about their genealogy and their family. They want to know the history of their ethnic group. There's so much emphasis in a pluralistic society to find your own identity through at least one smaller group in a pluralistic society. And then there's so much emphasis in the country now about just creating an identity to start with. Yeah, and uh, and so I think it could be because of that. Because I was I was also reading in a, in a, an article about families who have adopted Asian kids, and they feel that they need to teach the kids Asian culture. You know, and some of the kids are saying, "Huh? Are you teaching me this? I am not interested in it at all." And then other kids are like you know, more like, oh yeah, my birth parents and da 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 da. And, you know, it's just so funny how we try and create identities. Because you can see if if a kid, you know, if they left, let's say, China when they were an infant and came here, they're not growing up with thinking I'm Chinese, they're growing up thinking I'm American. Yeah? And yet this other culture is being pushed on them simply because of their racial characteristics, the arrangement of atoms and molecules in their body. As if, you know, because you have a certain arrangement of atoms and molecules, that therefore you should have a certain culture. That's not necessarily so, is it? Yeah? Um, I'd like to add to that, because both of my grandparents were adopted and they're from South America. Um, my daughter and husband are doing this at the time. They're teaching, they're trying to teach us on this culture. But I think some of this is just what you said about the, um, there's involvement with the birth mother now. Mm-hmm. And they're, I think they're encouraging that more and more. So the birth mother actually, they send her pictures um, of uh, at least one of them, not the other one at this point. And it's only if the mother wants that information. So there is some, there's almost like they have two, two parents going on, two mm-hmm. mothers going on. They don't have any say in what they get to do, but they get to be witness to their growing up and get through and so forth. I think there's some, you know, emphasis being put on that. Okay, but then it's it's quite interesting how just because a child comes out of your body, you label it mine and you're interested in how it grows up. Well, I mean, if you're interested in how a kid grows up, look at the kid next door to you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, why, why? You know, we have so much of this thing of I am my body, don't we? Yeah? Practical reason for you know wanting to know one's birth parents. 
But then I often wonder, you know, how, I mean, it's just a question I play with. How wise is it to know what the tendencies are in our family? You know? Because how much do we say, oh, my family has a tendency to da 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 da, and then we make it a wish fulfilling prophecy? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in the past and in the future, instead of in the present. Yeah. Uh huh. Things like to me living in a rural environment that uh, early fifties, probably early 70s, remember, but it seems like to me that people were a lot more content in not knowing what they could get and what they could die of and worrying about what they ate. You know, I mean, you went about your business, you went about your life, somebody died, you took some food, you sat around, and that was it. You know, <laughs> I, I don't you know Not worrying about how long they were going to live and what vitamins was going to cure cancer and what, you know, I don't know. I feel pretty strong. Yeah. No, I think there's really some truth in what you say. We have the leisure now to be more self-absorbed. Okay? I mean, if you think when we, those of us of a certain age, uh, or even you think, let's say, you know, in the 1900s, you know, did they have time to think about a lot of the stuff? You know? If, it was just, you know, you just did your work to stay alive. There was no leisure time to worry about, you know, what this one said and what that one said and da-da-da-da-da. You had to hang together as a group. Um, you know, whether there was, who knows what was going on in the family. You still had to hang together to stay alive. So there wasn't the leisure to self-obsess. <laughs> okay? So now we have the leisure to self-obsess. I wonder if it's good for us. <laughs> Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah, the media tells us who we are. Right. Yeah. I think it relates to uh, the fact that we're still living in a world where Control and that death is optional. Yeah. Right, right. How can we keep death at bay? Let's put more money into cryogenics. Yeah. Yeah. Just building on what she said, I often think that people 100 years ago were much more in touch with their alterations and how to suffering because death was a fact of life and we have this idea because we have good medical care in the West, for example, that just because we have a baby, it will grow up to be an adult and have a full life. And when we had a baby a hundred years ago, it was very possible that we would die in the first year mm-hmm. and then keep the life. Yeah. Isn't that yeah, how modern medicine has also made us self-obsessed. 
I've got to have every single medical treatment to keep me alive, even if I'm a vegetable. Yeah. What about learning how to die gracefully? What about learning how to have a happy death? Nobody wants to spend time doing that. Yeah. But they'll spend time in the hospital trying to avoid death. But death is the one thing we've got to do, so it, it makes more sense to spend some time learning how to do it. But how many of us think about that, you know? Yeah, death is the one thing I have to do. Am I learning how to do it? Are we learning how to die? Are we learning how to not think about death and to push it away and to pretend it doesn't exist? One thing about death is satisfaction guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's exactly it, you know? Satisfaction guaranteed? Who needs death? Yeah? I think one of the two leaders that are really intense imagining your own death meditation. Mm-hmm. The thought just came out of the middle of it of how wonderful we get that was how I was to die. That I got a diagnosis and I could sit there and know what was coming and at least have the opportunity to, to practice at whatever level I could. Because so much of what you've been discussing about, about the uncertainty is so far is you know, most of the time when we die, it's going to be, you have no idea it's coming, or you'll be in a car wreck and your mind's going to be going to work, you know, because you've got to have the office before, you know, it's happened, and, and you know, I just, I don't know, but I just really thought, wouldn't that be awesome to be diagnosed with terminal cancer and have six months to put everything in order, you know, <laughs> compared to how it's probably going to be? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, terminal diagnosis looks better and better. <laughs> we already have one, actually. Yeah, from the moment we were born, we got our terminal diagnosis. So. We just need an expiration date. <laughs> yeah. And we want it here. We don't want the doctor to make a mistake. The doctor says we only have six months. Well, and we actually live past six months. We're not going to know what to do with ourselves. Yeah. And if the doctor says we're going to live six months and we die in three months, we're going to sue her. Yeah. <laughs> they seem to know how long you have to check the recruit schedules. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. What I um, found to address your question is that's one of the great benefits of a mantra practice mm-hmm. is that in any moment when you when your mantra comes to your mind, the Lord comes to your mind. So even if death comes just like that, if you're in the habit mm-hmm. of, of calling the Lord somehow comes to mind and you die in that same a friend of mine who was in a coma told me she was reciting mantra while she was in her coma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she had been in retreat and I forget what happened. But she went up in a coma, but she was reciting the mantra. Huh? Yeah. yeah. But it's true, you know, if you get uh, habituated with saying something besides poor me, poor me, you know, and something virtuous that makes you think of the qualities of the Buddha, 
and you can return to that, you know, when your mind starts freaking out or, you know, whenever what happens. You know, and this is how we, we train our mind, you know. Even now, some delusion comes to mind. If we can recognize it as a delusion, recognize it as attachment or whatever, or whatever and then bring ourselves back, you know, to our mantra, to our object of meditation, then, you know, it becomes much easier to do that when we're dying. Yeah. But now you have your new problem to come back to when you get distracted. Yeah? Could we just check on that and see what people think with it? People did with your new problem? Yeah. Yeah, I thought I'd give you like the whole day to work with it. Uh-huh. Yeah, not just one session. I mean, you got to obsess at least one day. <laughs> and then we'll check up tomorrow morning and see, you know, what effect it had. Yeah. But whether you're in session or outside, see, when your mind starts spinning, you come back to your new problem. Yeah, you hear that? Not your old one, your new one. <laughs> okay, so let's dedicate. <laughs>